The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. This is God's word. Pete, our lead preaching pastor, is gone this weekend. Um, he's out in the Kentucky, Cincinnati area at his 30th high school, I'm just kidding, 20th high school <laughs> reunion. Had to give him a little bit. Um, at, his, at his high school reunion, I guess I just divulged his age, but yeah, he's, he's out there um, celebrating that and having a good time. So, so I'm here to preach and continue in our Thessalonian series, so I hope you had an extra cup of coffee this morning. Um, so yeah, we're continuing through our series in Thessalonians, not taking a break. This is our third week, third Sunday in the series. Uh, we've gotten some good content out, had some great discussions in our life group so far around what Paul has been revealing to us uh, in this letter about his gospel ministry and his deep love and affection for the Thessalonian church. So if you've been paying close attention, uh, you may have realized that today's text is actually comes before last week's text. So if you were here last week, um, we had our family Sunday where our first through fifth graders were in here with us. And uh, Pete preached through chapter 2, verses 7 through 12, uh, which just lent themselves a little bit better to that context of, of that week. So this week, we're just taking a step back uh, in kind of that same passage and preaching through what James just read, which is... Um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Um, so really, last week and this week, they, they go together well as one big point that Paul is making. He's putting on display his genuine love and affection and care for the Thessalonian church. He reveals how deeply he loves and cares uh, for them and how pure his motivations are in his relationship with them. So last week, Pete talked about what Paul's love and gospel ministry looked like, that it took the form of a, uh, a, an endearing, familial, family-style relationship love. And so today, we're digging into a little bit more on um, Paul's motives, what motivated him, what drove his ministry, the flow of his life to the Thessalonians. And so in this passage that we just read, Paul here is really emphasizing uh, the purity of his motives in coming to them and why the church should continue to trust him, basically. So I want you to uh, imagine for a minute that you, uh, you're having a friend or a peer or someone uh, drive your, your kids around. Um, and so they're going to drive your kids. And, and so they come, when, when they hear that, they come up to you and they say, hey, you should really trust me. I'm a really, really, really good driver. I always use my blinker. I always go the speed limit. I still have my license. Um, and so they're kind of going on and on and on. And so you start to wonder, you kind of think, why are you working so hard to get my approval? Even though you're saying that I should trust you, it's a little bit hard to trust what your motives are because you're working so hard to, to get my approval. 
So Paul's like making a case for why he should be trusted, but this is like the exact opposite of what's happening here. So instead of, um, he, so he's elaborating on why they should trust him, but he's doing it from a deeply secure place. He's not insecure at all or needing to prove to them um, his, his motives. He's simply, he's putting on display for them how deeply secure he is in his identity in Christ and in the mission that he's been called to uh, and given and entrusted with by God. He's pointing to his life as an example of how the gospel transforms your motivations and your interactions with the people and the world around you. So Paul's point to them is that the confidence and the boldness he has to love them and give his life for them is driven by God's approval of him. It's driven by God's approval of him. That's kind of at the centerpiece of this passage here this morning. That there's no doubt in Paul's mind that having God's approval is the absolute highest priority in his life, and he has it. And this is what drives him to want to live a life that's pleasing to God. So at this time in, in uh, this culture, this era, there was a lot of different types of itinerant teachers and personalities and philosophers that are circulating throughout uh, Thessalonica. So for the people at this time, it was easy to lump Paul into this general crowd of, of personalities. So the common perception of this, of this crowd was that they were simply after selfish gain, that they would leverage their platform and their skill for, for money, sex, and power. So even though Paul had, had no reason to doubt the loyalty of the Thessalonian church to him, he knew that their cultural climate was one of mistrust and manipulation to get people's approval. So in his appeal to them, he contrasts, he contrasts himself and his gospel-driven motives and the ways, with the ways that we often use to gain other people's approval. Here he calls out and draws attention to three main ways of, that we gain approval or that the culture kind of tells us to gain approval from other people. Flattery, greed, and glory. So maybe you've had an experience similar to this. I, I remember in college once I was uh, sitting on the porch with a bunch of friends and we were kind of hanging out and gradually everyone left and so I was sitting there with, with one other person and and we kept talking, and she started asking me about um, what I was passionate about in life and what some of my goals were. So as the conversation unfolded, I began to realize that this was her way in to selling me on joining a team for selling stuff, and that this would be my ticket to being able to live out my true uh, passions in life. So she was, she was recruiting me, but was framing it in a way that what she really wanted was my happiness. So at the core of what she was doing was that she was trying to convince me that her motives were really there to help me succeed. But really, it was to make a sale, right? We've all seen this. You know, we, someone comes to the door and it's like, man, I'm glad you care so much about my household and my life, but I really don't need the Kirby vacuum right now. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not trying to say that all multi-level marketing and, and sales conversations are ingenuine. I'm not trying to say that it's all bad, um, but just pointing out that it's not that hard for us to spot flattery and greed and the pursuit of glory 
in other people. We can sniff this out pretty well. I think we live in a skeptical time. We can, we can figure this out. But what Paul's bringing up is that this is a heart issue. So what about us? You know, it's interesting. When you think about flattery or greed or pursuing glory, um, if, if repentance is something that's on your radar or something you, you confess, when was the last time you ever confessed being a flatterer or being greedy or being um, seeking your own glory? I don't think we think of these things a lot of times. How do we see these in our own hearts? Paul exposes these as common ways we settle for seeking approval from others instead of from God. Our world around, the world around us is so saturated with these ways of seeking approval that it can be really hard for us to actually see them in ourselves and know that, that they're there, but they are. So I think if we look closely, we'll see that maybe they hit home a little closer than we, we think, than we'd like to admit. So what is flattery? We'll look into flattery a little bit. We think of it kind of, oftentimes we'll define it as buttering someone up to get something from them, right? We think of it as like um, sharing things, giving people excessive compliments uh, that may or may not be true to, to get something from them. But at its core, really at the core of flattery, is kind of this, this sense that I am who I know that my value is tied up in who I'm associated with. It's believing that my value is associated with getting people to like me. It's an exchange. I give you my compliments and affirmation, and you give me your attention or friendship. We can do this through what we say, but more subtly, we can do this through what we don't say, too. So maybe we avoid sharing with someone something we really truly feel when they ask for feedback. Maybe there's a brewing issue in your marriage or your roommate situation, and for the sake of keeping them happy with you, you don't want to honestly bring it up. And therefore, we're avoiding loving truth-telling. It's kind of the same heart as flattery. It's just not something we're actually saying. Or maybe if we think about it, we could consider social media. Maybe it's a hope that, that uh, you have that if you like and comment enough, on someone else's account, they'll take notice of you and what you post, and you'll feel more important. The whole platform and premise of social media existing is engineered to thrive based on an exchange of approvals and likes and hearts. Paul had followers. Jesus had followers. How do I get more followers? Now, again, I'm not saying that social media is qualitatively bad or that compliments and peacemaking are evil, but I am saying that the heart of flattery is more pervasive and far-reaching than we may give it credit. Paul is exposing common heart issues, issues that are common to humankind. So what about greed? Greed says, I am what I have. Greed says, I am what I have. It says, I gain approval from myself or others through holding on to what I have and watching it accumulate. The biggest thing for us to realize, and I think we all know this, is that greed is not a rich person problem. Greed says, what's mine is mine. And the way this works itself out is that we tend to use what we have, material or immaterial, 
as a way of keeping a form of control in our lives over situations or people or other people. Or using what we have as a measuring stick for comparing ourselves to others. I remember in the uh, very early, early days of, uh, of church here that there was a morning life group that was meeting. And we organized some paid child care for it and uh, asked for contributions from the participants to help cover that cost. And most people did, but there was one, anonymous to me, uh, that said they wouldn't contribute because they felt it was something that the church should be paying for and providing. And so I think it's, it's possible that at the heart of something like this, something as small as that, is a posture of, of greed. It wasn't an issue of not having uh, the money. It was an issue of leveraging a possession to express some sense of control over the situation rather than freely blessing. Greed says, I won't give because I shouldn't have to. Maybe it's greed that says, I worked hard for this, and I deserve to keep this to myself. Could it be greed that says, I won't have people over because I just cleaned my house? Maybe there's some greed in thinking, I won't have people over until these house projects are finished. Greed says, I don't want to go talk to that person because I'll have to work too hard to keep the conversation moving. I really don't want to get to know that person because I already know that we don't have anything in common. We're hoarding our time, our energies, our vulnerabilities. Greed says, I work to fund my hobbies. Greed says, it's Father's Day, so I'm, I'm checking out and doing what I want. So again, please don't hear what I'm not saying. And I'm not saying, of course, it's okay to enjoy the fruit of our labors. Uh, it's okay to have hobbies and good self-care practices. And hobbies, yeah, they're not bad. But it is sinful to let our grip of what's ours become a barrier to leveraging what we have for the love and the good of our neighbor. Greed affects our view of politics. Greed can shape our view of retirement. Greed often shapes our ambitions. Greed shapes our view of community and relationships and hospitality far more than we think we realize. And I think we realize. All these different examples are ways we signal to ourselves and to others that we're acceptable people, that we've arrived or are getting closer to arriving, that, we, that, that what we have, our resource capital, uh, our family capital, our skill capital, etc., <clears throat> compared to others, shows that we're squared away and therefore acceptable. It's one of the ways we prove ourselves and seek approval from others. So what does what a heart that pursues glory say? It says, I am <clears throat> my reputation. <clears throat> I think uh, practical, something I can relate to both ends of this, whether we overspeak or never speak in a life group can be an example of a glory issue. They seem like opposites, but they both have to do with wanting to establish or maintain our reputation, whether it's in our own eyes or in the eyes of others. So deep down, what are, what are you seeking? What are we seeking? Are we seeking an impact? Are we seeking a reputation of smartness? Are we really considering if what is actually, what's, what's offered is actually helpful? Or are we treating the discussion like an intellectual playground? 
have to ask myself these questions sometimes and check my heart. What are, what are motives? What drives me to, to share or to talk? Is this helpful? Maybe we never want to speak up uh, because if we do, people might think we're dumb. We'll expose ourselves. We want to hold on to this idea of our own glory that we, that we picture, no matter how small we, we define that. Could it be that this is something, uh, simply something we're doing to maintain our own sense of glory? making sure that we don't do anything to lose any ground uh, in people's opinion of us. Something I deal with that maybe you can relate to all the time is a fear of failure. And I think at least for me in my situation, my contact, context, uh, that's, that's me fearing a hit to my own perception of my own glory. I don't extend myself out of fear, out of a, a hoarding or a protection of my own uh, glory in, in my own eyes, my own approval of myself. So maybe not all of these examples are relatable to us, but hopefully some of them are. Um, and, I, and I hope I didn't sound too judgmental of people. <laughs> but, but Paul here is contrasting his pure motives with these because he knows something of the human heart. These aren't just arbitrary choices, these, these ideas of flattery, greed, and glory. Uh, they aren't unique to first century Thessalonica. They're common, as I said, to the heart of mankind, of humankind. And here's the common thread and why it matters to expose them and identify them. Because these are all examples of looking somewhere other than to God for our approval. We're settling for something or someone else's approval other than God himself. But Paul, he makes it very clear in our passage that we read this morning that God's approval should be our highest priority. It's right for pleasing God to be the thing that drives our life and our behaviors, but we settle for far less. We constantly look elsewhere for our approval. Our priority, as Paul's was, should be God's approval. Paul urges us, through his own example, to live as a God-pleaser rather than a people-pleaser. So every single thing we do, think, and feel is before the face of God, and he knows the inner workings of our hearts. He tests our hearts and knows our motives, and he is the rightful owner of our ambitions and our affections. If God is really real, his opinion of us matters more than anyone else's. So the important next thing for us to consider then is we consider the priority of God's approval and how we fall short of that is, uh, is to consider how in the world, how do we get God's approval? How can we share in Paul's clear conscience before God and ambition to serve him and love others freely? And why would, why would we want to? This is the news that Paul has risked his life to share with the Thessalonians. He says he's entrusted with the gospel. It's the message of how we get God's approval, and it's wildly controversial. He was run out of the city for bringing this news because, A, it means we are far worse than we thought, and we actually need to be rescued, and B, we can't do anything about it. But it's radically good news. It's the news that Jesus came to do what we couldn't do, to live in a way that God perfectly approved of, and that he received the wrath and the punishment of God that, that God has against our sinful and selfish living. 
So the hope that the gospel brings us is only realized in looking to Jesus as our only way to get God's approval and trusting that he freely and graciously gives it to us. God's approval of us is something given to us by his one-way grace and received by faith. Paul's life, as we've seen, was radically changed by this news. He went from a life of measuring his glory through trying to kill people, through he was ascending the glory chain by persecuting Christians and advancing in, in that world. And it changed so radically that he was risking his own life to share with others the glory of Jesus. This gospel, the news of our undeserved acceptance by God through our union with Christ, completely transforms our motives because its very nature, if you think about it, is the complete opposite of flattery and greed and self-serving glory. The gospel is the opposite of flattery because it tells us the painful truth about who we really are. The gospel is the epitome of speaking the truth in love because in it, we hear the truth about ourselves, and yet we receive Jesus giving away his life in love as he takes our old identity with him to the cross. So he tells us the truth about ourselves and then provides the way out to great cost to himself. The gospel is the opposite of greed, because here we see God say, what's mine is yours. Isn't that the opposite of greed? If greed is what's mine is mine, to be able to say what's mine is yours. Have you ever heard someone say that before? We see God give up his very self, his precious only son, to bring us to himself. He shares his very life with us. And the gospel, and in the gospel, we see the opposite of self-serving glory. We see Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, yet humbled himself to death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself to bring us into God's glory. So it's only through accepting this gospel and, and beginning to let it shape our lives that we can be free from looking elsewhere for our approval, free from playing the games of the world, the social ladder, the flattery, the pursuit of our glory, the holding on to our possessions. Knowing we have God's acceptance when we didn't deserve it and that we can never lose it gives us a reason to love God purely. What does living a life that pleases God look like? Does it mean that Paul never again struggled with a heart of flattery or greed or selfish glory? No, Paul's not saying he was perfect or that we should be to please God. He's simply saying that because he has God's approval, he doesn't have to look elsewhere. So a life pleasing to God is not one that never sins. It's one that remembers and cherishes the approval we have in Christ and glorifies God for it. When we treasure what Christ has done for us, we can truly love others without the burden of needing something from them. We can truly love God purely and not out of fear. Embracing the love and grace God has given us is what frees us from sin and leads us to genuinely want to please God with our entire lives. So it leads us to live a life pleasing to him and to desire to do that.